Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which is available now, and The Wellness Trap, which comes out on April 25th. You can learn more and pre-order the book at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. That's christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is actually a guest host. My friend Katie Dalebout is here to interview me about my new book, The Wellness Trap, which is out this week if you're listening to this the week it airs. I'm so excited for the book launch, and I was really psyched to have Katie guest host the episode because first and foremost, she's a great interviewer. She's done more than 400 interviews on her own podcast. And I also knew we'd have a lot to talk about since she knows my work so well. She's been both a friend of mine and a friend of the pod and a fan of both pods, actually, for over 10 years now. And she had her own journey of falling into the traps of wellness culture and finding her way out. And she's also been helping me set up book events and a book tour, a podcast book tour. So she knows the book inside and out. She's read it really carefully. And I knew she would have great questions to ask me. And I think she really did. It's a really great conversation. And I can't wait to share it with you. In it, we talk about why I wanted to write a book about wellness, the potential harms of integrative and functional medicine approaches, and why we're understandably really attracted to these approaches, especially those of us with chronic conditions who feel unheard or dismissed by the conventional healthcare system, the connections between wellness culture and diet culture, the legacy of the hysteria diagnosis, and why women are still having to push back against that idea that, you know, symptoms are all in our heads, the role of social media in spreading wellness, mis- and disinformation, and lots more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. And of course, I would love if you would buy the book, which you can now pre-order for one more day if you're listening to this the day it comes out. Otherwise, you can just order it, regular order. Just go into your local bookstore and buy it off the shelf, which is so exciting. The book is called The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses and Find Your True Well-Being. And it explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap to learn more and get the book, either pre-order or regular order. And if you pre-order it before tomorrow, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, so before April 25th, you can get a special bonus webinar and Q&A with me by uploading your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. If you like this show and want to help support it, I'd be so grateful if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it, which helps it grow and helps it get in front of more listeners. 
You can do that wherever you're listening to this. And you can also get the podcast as a newsletter in your inbox every other week, where you can either listen to the audio or read a full transcript or both. Subscribe to that at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. And if you upgrade to a paid subscription, you get occasional bonus content plus early access to episodes. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to learn more and subscribe. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Katie Dalebout. I'm so happy to be here. Christy, congrats on the new book and the new podcast. I have been a fan of you for years, decades, a decade at least. (laughs) (laughs) And this podcast and this book especially are no exceptions. I've gotten to read the book already. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording how much of it I want to talk about and pull out of it. And it was really hard to narrow down what we're going to talk about today. And we'll just kind of see where it goes. But I'm really happy to be here. And congrats. Thank you so much, Katie. It's so good to talk with you always. And I'm so glad you're interviewing me for this on my own podcast to talk about the book. I couldn't think of anyone better, anyone I would more want to do that. And I feel like we're just, you know, your story and your experience with wellness culture was so inspiring to me and thinking about wellness culture and this book. And it's been an interesting journey for both of us, I think, out of the difficult, problematic forms of wellness culture that we both fell into. So I just think we have we have a lot to talk about and a lot of commonalities in that way too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I was reading it, I just <laughs> so many many of the stories that I read and all the people that you interviewed and all the research that you did, I had so many eye-opening moments and then also so many moments of like <gasps> could have been me, could have been me. <laughs> <laughs> and just relating so much to so many people that you that you interviewed. So when did this idea first form for you and what was some of that early research like and what drew you to want to unpack this topic more? Yeah, I mean, it's been such an interesting like 10 plus years of being sort of an observer of wellness culture. And I was actually making, I made a little page on my website that's sort of like catalogs all the writing and speaking I did about wellness culture leading up to the book. Probably not all of it because I think I missed some, but like I was like tagging things and putting them in a little summary block and stuff. And the f- one of the first things that was there was your episode from 2014 of Food Psych, Aww. you know, where we <laughs> talked about orthorexia. We talked about like, you know, the quote unquote healthy behaviors that you were doing in your pursuit of wellness spiraling into something really disordered and I was working with people with orthorexia at the time as a dietitian and sort of steeped in how wellness culture was harming people without sort of naming it as that and without knowing everything that I do now of in the in the past 10 years of like spending time observing this and researching but I think your story was like part of the genesis of this book so I think that was really special and I I appreciate that. Wow, I remember that day so well. It, it was when I first met you. Yeah, when you the the first time we went in person was when you showed up at my door because that's yeah that's who we both were at the time. We were just like yeah weird boundaryless people that would you know would do something like that. Yeah, it worked out well in in this friendship. <laughs> it really did. I'm so glad. Could have gone many ways, but <laughs> it's really lucky. 
Wow. Wow. I can't, I, it, it seems like lifetimes ago and also not that long ago somehow in my brain. I know. I know. I feel like a completely different person. And also it's like, feels very close at the same time. Soon after that, I think I wrote a piece about clean eating for Refinery29. You know, clean eating was very much in the discourse and showing up for me and my work with clients with disordered eating. And that was like one of the first manifestations of this social media version of wellness culture, I would call it, I guess, that I really observed close up. But I was very much a part of wellness culture before that, too. I was so caught up in like the proto-clean eating, I guess you could call it, like the farm-to-table movement and Michael Pollan and Marion Nestle and thinking about food politics in this way that was very ostensibly about and, and to some extent is about like food systems, but also is very demonizing of particular foods and the food industry and, you know, has a lot of fat phobia baked in, a lot of weight stigma and anti-fat rhetoric that was for me sort of my orthorexia, my orthorexic thinking about food kind of stemmed from that approach or that philosophy. And so coming out of that and starting to work with eating disorders, I saw clean eating as like a new manifestation of, you know, the the sort of crunchy farm to table stuff that I had taken part of. And then from there, I think it's just, it's just morphed and shape-shifted in so many different ways. And, you know, wellness culture, as we talked about in what we're going to post as a bonus episode to this one, we talked about like the history of wellness culture and sort of how it intertwines with diet culture. And so I think it, you know, diet culture really is sort of baked in from very early on in the like 1970s genesis of wellness culture as I, as as it sort of exists now. And I think there's been a lot of interesting unfolding, particularly with the pandemic that led me to want to think about wellness culture and keep unpacking and exploring it. Because in my first book, Anti-Diet, I covered wellness in the second chapter, and it was like really tough to rein myself in. I definitely felt like I could write a whole book just about that and put it on my list of like potential next book ideas because it just felt like there was so much more there. I didn't turn that into a real book proposal or even know for sure I wanted to do that as my next book until 2020 when the pandemic happened and there was such a proliferation of wellness misinformation online, you know, people talking about supposed cures for COVID and that their essential oils or their whatever protocol, whatever sort of wellness culture thing that they were already selling was now supposed to cure COVID and all these recommendations for cutting out foods and then also like all the demonization of higher weight bodies that came about with COVID and then the sort of emergence of more and more conspiracy theory type rhetoric and conspiracist beliefs about the vaccine and about masking and all that stuff. So I was starting to see that unfold and just sort of horrified by all of it. And I think that was a a major piece. And I actually ended up getting my book deal on January 5th of 2021, like the day before the fateful January 6th. So wild, like such weird timing. And so, you know, I was already starting to think about like the conspiracism and the role of social media in fomenting more and more extreme wellness content and leading people down rabbit holes towards like anti-vaxxing and swearing off all kinds of conventional medicine and and going completely 
into the supposedly natural space where, you know, a lot of things are really unproven and potentially harmful. And then January 6th, I think, just helped clarify for me the role that social media algorithms were playing in in driving people towards those extremes. And, you know, some of the research that was coming out on how social media amplifies division and hate and drives people toward those extremes, you know, really resonated with what I was seeing already in in wellness culture and had seen so many people kind of individually falling down rabbit holes with clean eating and that sort of anti-food bias and demonization of certain foods and elevation of others. So I've seen that a lot in my clients who are recovering from disordered eating kind of over the years, but something else I saw starting to really pop up more and more, it seemed like around 2020 was clients and readers or listeners coming to me with questions like, my functional medicine doctor diagnosed me with leaky gut syndrome, or my naturopath told me I have adrenal fatigue, or this questionnaire online or this wellness influencer told me that I have chronic candida or whatever. And I'm being told to cut out all these foods and take all these supplements, but it's really affecting my relationship with food. It's making me feel really disordered with food, or it's setting me back in my eating disorder. Maybe the person was recovered or recovering, and now it's like threatening their recovery. People come to me being like, what should I do? How can I like do this medically necessary diet while also not, you know, destroying my relationship with food. And whenever I get those kinds of questions, my typical response, and I I mean, same when I get these recommendations for myself too, as someone with multiple chronic illnesses, you know, if a doctor kind of offhandedly says, oh, you might try cutting out blah, 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 or whatever, I'll go to the research and see what the science actually says and, you know, look at whether this actually has a strong evidence base or not, because I think that's really helpful in, in deciding like, is this something that is truly medically necessary and could be helpful and I can frame it as self-care? Or is this something that is, you know, not helpful, potentially harmful, or just just not evidence-based, in which case, like, I don't want to put myself at risk or put my recovery at risk or have other people put their recovery at risk, you know? And so when I started really looking into those kinds of questions and, and have been doing this for years, but it, it started to become like, really a pattern to me, I think, when I was thinking about wellness culture in this way, you know, I would notice that there really wasn't a lot of good evidence behind these things. And in some cases, the diagnoses themselves, the supposed diagnoses that people are coming in with, aren't evidence-based either. Like those things I mentioned, you know, adrenal fatigue, chronic candida, leaky gut syndrome, they all have some grain of truth to them, but they're the supposed diagnoses themselves are really full of misinformation and dubious diagnoses, as I call them. So that was really a driving force, I think, behind this book, too, of wanting to unpack all of this misinformation and grains of truth that get blown up into, like, you know, popped out into popcorn of of misinformation that I think is affecting more and more people. And I'm seeing, like, books and podcasts and things that are in this functional and integrative and alternative medicine space become increasingly popular and taking a lot of people in, in ways that I don't think are justified given the the lack of really strong evidence behind them. And for me personally, as someone with those multiple chronic health conditions, many of which are 
often prescribed diets and sort of functional and integrative interventions like, oh, you have autoimmune conditions, cut out gluten, cut out dairy, cut out this, cut out that. You have IBS, you need to cut out all these foods, you need to take these supplements, like, you know, all of these different things that that are so common. You know, so many people do have chronic conditions. 60% of, of Americans live with some chronic health condition, 40% have two or more. So, you know, I'm very much not alone in that experience. But I think it's because it is so increasingly common, I think people are searching for answers for those things. And unfortunately, the conventional healthcare system isn't really well set up to deal with chronic conditions, and especially like diagnosing chronic conditions that may have lots of nebulous symptoms, the picture can be very unclear at first, and it can take a long time to get diagnosed. And that was certainly my experience and has been the experience of many people I know and have interviewed and, and worked with. So there's this long phase for a lot of people, I think, where they're just like, I don't know what's going on. You know, my doctor's dismissing me or not giving me a lot of help or, you know, I'm being very underserved by the conventional system, even if I am being served somewhat. And so it, I think, creates this void that wellness culture easily steps in to fill with potentially really dangerous consequences for a lot of people. Yeah, I think many things I appreciate about this book, but something in particular is the empathy that you give to those of us who have fallen into wellness traps. And you talk about, you know, like you said, your your own chronic illnesses and how the pitfalls of the modern healthcare system, you know, can make us feel dismissed or abandoned. And it's easy to find solace in alternative medicine because there are a few things that the alternative system can do with something called the care effect, which you go into in the book, which is, you know, apply, well, I'll let you explain, but it's something that the healthcare system really lacks and can lead people in further because we all want to feel heard and cared for and not dismissed. So can you talk about that? Because that was one of the many eye-opening parts about, especially in the functional medicine section of this book. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, I think the care effect is really very real and definitely lacking, I think, in a lot of corners of conventional medicine, not that it's entirely lacking, because I think we can definitely find caring providers who give us that that sense of being held and being cared for. Um, but what the care effect is, is, is this part of a family of placebo effects that is related to the mind-body connection and sort of placebo effect means that you believe that something is helping or that you you have a certain expectation that something's going to help. And so it does. It actually creates real physical effects in the body um, in part by working on pain receptors like pain pain reduction pathways, the endogenous opioid system um, can be activated by expectations that something is going to help. And one thing that we can expect is going to help us is when a provider really seems to care for us and take an interest in our um, situation and spends lots of time with us and gives us empathy and this sense of being cared for um, really can raise the expectation that you're that you're getting help and you're getting care and therefore can help reduce symptoms. And so this is definitely something that happens more for things that have a component of pain involved, right? So it's not necessarily applicable to things like cancer because, you know, your expectations about 
getting care, your expectations about whether a particular medication is going to work or something can't actually fight cancer cells in your body, but it can help reduce the pain and the symptoms that might be associated with the cancer. So, you know, even in situations like that, where it's the placebo effect isn't having a real measurable impact on your condition, it still might have an impact on the symptoms that you're feeling and experiencing with the condition. So the care effect, I think, is really powerful. And it's something that Again and again, I hear people say, and I have had this in my own experience too, that when you're working with someone who is sort of outside of the conventional healthcare system, who's more of an integrative or functional provider, or who's even further outside, like a, a complementary or alternative medicine provider, that oftentimes in those spaces, you get more time, you get more empathy, you get people who are asking questions and like really assuring you that they're going to get to the bottom of things. And unfortunately, we don't always get that in the conventional healthcare system where appointments can be, you know, five to 15 minutes, like 15 minutes is kind of like a long appointment in my experience, you know, and providers can be somewhat brusque and rushed, even if they are like really trying to take the time to work with you, they may not be able to do a lot of deep empathizing. They may not have a lot of solutions for you. They might give you one option and say, you know, try this, see if it works, come back if not, you know. And I think that can leave people really vulnerable to alternative treatments that that give them more hope, that give them more options, that make them feel more heard and understood. Because, you know, if you're suffering from something and you don't want to, like you're, you're hesitant about taking medication or you don't want to take pharmaceuticals because you feel like they're harsh, or you'd rather do something with fewer side effects that you think has fewer side effects to start. But the provider in question, the, the conventional medicine provider, doesn't offer you that or doesn't sort of explain and walk through the steps or doesn't take the time to meet you in your hesitancy about taking a particular medication and explain the side effects and also the risks of not taking it or the alternatives and what the risks of those might be then you're sort of left to your own devices. And I think a lot of us, when left to our own devices in that way, will turn to Dr. Google or turn increasingly to Dr. Social Media and find these spaces where we can connect with other people who have chronic conditions, trade ideas. But then unfortunately, what often happens is we kind of get targeted as, you know, people who are looking for health information. There's now, you know, ads being served to us based on what we've searched for and um, things start to follow us around the internet. You know, we start to get pulled down this algorithmic rabbit hole of information that can often be, you know, mis and even disinformation. So misinformation being incorrect information and disinformation being incorrect information with intent to deceive. Um, you know, and so social media kind of radicalizes people in that way, which we can talk a little more about, but it puts people really at risk when they don't feel like they're getting the care that they need. And conversely, when people are having that care effect in, in alternative medicine and wellness culture spaces, it can go a long way to helping them feel better to the point where I think it, it can start to be very confusing sometimes because people feel like they're getting cared for and heard and understood. And then they're given these treatments or protocols that don't necessarily work and may actually have pretty severe side effects or other unintended consequences and start to feel worse because of that. But then they were feeling better because of the care effect. And so it's kind of like, you know, instead of thinking, okay, this provider is not giving me something that works or this treatment wasn't effective, 
the blame can often sort of shift to the individual or can start to feel, it can start to feel like, okay, well, we tried this one thing, it didn't work. So we have to do a harsher version of this thing. We have to do a stricter diet. We have to eliminate more foods. We have to add more supplements. We have to add more experimental sort of treatments and protocols. And so you can get down this path of adding on and on and on more and more stuff that is actually not helpful. But, you know, because of the because of the placebo effects that exist from, you know, the care effect to just the expectation that something's going to help and the expectation that natural is always better and something that is natural is going to be helpful. I think you can get sort of led pretty far down that path before realizing, oh, this isn't actually helpful. Yeah. I'm laughing because it's so one could. It's like, oh, I did. I I sure <laughs> did. I I relate hard hard relate a lot of hard relates in this book for me. <laughs> I know this is you interviewing me, but I'm curious to hear a few a few of your experiences in this too. I mean, I know I know a lot of them offline, but just for the folks listening, you know, to to hear some of what you went through. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because when we well maybe we can just let everyone in on a on a little secret there's a lost basement tapes version <laughs> of this conversation that we had some early recording interviews but half of it was great and the half that was great was about the history of all of this and and I told you this before but in your first book anti diet you go into the history of diet culture and how it began and and got to where it is today. And and similarly in this book, you do that with wellness culture. And I loved that part. That was really eye-opening to me. And so we, we talked about that. And then I was thinking about my own history with this part, especially in terms of functional medicine, because I think before I read this book, which seems so odd to even say that it had, this hadn't clicked with me before, but I hadn't really even fully made the connection between my orthorexia and anorexia and wellness culture. Like I knew that it was, I knew that orthorexia is, you know, this obsession with going down a wormhole, but I hadn't like thought about functional medicine as being related to that. And then when we were recording in the Lost Basement tapes, the the first part, I think I mentioned that as you were talking about some of this, I was like, oh, when I was really, really young and a a family, I came back from study abroad and I had what a family friend who was maybe in school for functional medicine. Like, I'm not even sure she was, you know, she was one of my cousin's friends and she just, I thought she was really cool. I really liked her. I was just off to the races, you know? She told me I had a parasite. She told me to do this and this and this and this and this. And then and then I have a very addictive personality and where she would have stopped even, I then kept going and it snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And I think in a way where a lot of this is just how it panned out for me, but it was so alternative from all the medicine that I had growing up, all the food that I had growing up. You know, we grew up in very different places, you on the West Coast. And I grew up in the Midwest and my, you know, my family owns fast food restaurants. So then it became sort of this identity and this rebellion. And then it was happened to coincide with a time where all of this was starting to, this is about 2012, 
starting to blow up on social media really, really slowly or social media was starting to exist, I guess. And I found community and I found an identity as someone would in like, you know, the nineties getting into grunge music or something, you know, it was, it was this alternative way of being. And at a time where I was malleable at a time where my career was malleable. And I think an interesting thing that you and I have discussed quite a bit is that our, when your career is in a malleable place, during the time where you get into to wellness or, or you have an eating disorder or a little bit of both in my case, you know, it can really shift the course of, of your career and your life. And I think I'm, I'm only now 10 years later starting to fully see the impacts of that. And, and reading your book was some of it felt so bleak in the sense of, Oh my gosh, everybody seems so bought in. I live in Los Angeles now and I just feel like there's just so much talk of wellness culture. It's so in the media it's, and then social media it's just like amplified. And so it felt really comforting to to see the research behind it and and then, you know, while you tell the truth and and show it so comprehensively, you also as, you know, people will see when they get to spend time with the book and and even on episodes of this podcast, you always, and again, something I appreciate about you is like, okay, but what can we do about this? How can we move forward? It does feel really good in that way and comforting in that way. And that's what I found after reading it is like, I felt better after reading it. I was happy to know the information. And there was a little bit of like, oh man, I wish I would have known that then, but I know it now. And here's what we can do about it. And that felt really good. But going back briefly to the functional medicine bit, I I think like you were saying, when someone comes in and applies care and empathy, we all want to be heard and and understood, you know, I think feeling misunderstood or feeling dismissed, especially for all people, but especially for, for women. And I think especially when we're trying to figure out what's going on with us, having someone apply care, even for me with a friend or with, with anyone, it, it kind of reminded me of like the dating term that 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 I I'm not even sure I fully understand what it means but have you heard about love bombing? Oh yeah, absolutely. It kind of feels like what can happen in this at the beginning of finding a practitioner who is listening and and has more time and spends more time with you it feels like, oh my God, okay. You're like the, you go from black and white to color. Like, and also in, in diet culture, how that, that feeling that, that we've talked about before too, of diet starts tomorrow. I'm going to be a new person once I, you know, and then of course it's, it's bleak and it's their ups and downs with everything, but it, it sort of reminds me of, of that. And going off of that, two of the most chilling parts, I think in the section about functional medicine specifically one of them really made my stomach drop like on a roller coaster was when you you spoke about how people who like myself have a history of disordered eating say that to a new practitioner as i have done whether it's been with a functional medicine doctor or in my case mostly with just having moved a lot of times and going to different 
doctors in the healthcare system. Something you taught me to do was to say that like out of the gate and to say like, I don't actually want to be weighed. I'd like to turn around. And, and I know you've had this experience too. And, and same and with having a baby. And sometimes it's, it's really hard for doctors and just people in general to remember everything and and take all this into account. But I know we've both had experiences where, you know, I remember once in New York, I got a piece of paper and I, even though they're like, yeah, 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 no problem about the weight. And then like, there's my weight and there's my, you know, or it's just like, they said it after whatever it is, like these things we, we, it takes a lot sometimes for me to take care of myself in that way and to actually be honest and say that, and then have it disregarded or just and not even, of course it's not purposeful, but I think something that in the functional medicine space with these diets in particular with elimination diets and cutting out all these things, they probably just don't know how intense that is for someone who has a history with disordered eating. And the chilling part was when you said like, this is something that I have a history with, the doctor still will say, go on to this diet and cut this out and, and do all of those things. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I will say, you know, to anyone listening who's a fan of functional medicine or practitioner, like I'm not trying to paint with a broad brush and say the whole field or everyone in it is leading people into disordered eating. But I do think that the tenets of functional medicine and also of a related field, lifestyle medicine, are largely based on cutting out food, right? On food as medicine, the idea of food as medicine. And I think when you get into thinking about food as medicine, that's a really slippery slope when you're living in diet and wellness culture, right? When when we're in a culture where people are already demonizing certain foods and elevating others, and there's so much moralization about food kind of in the ether, just we've all absorbed our whole lives, telling people like, oh, even if it's like the gentlest possible approach, you may want to avoid this, or you might consider eating this before this or whatever. It's really hard to, well, A, there's not always great science or evidence like really behind that, right? Sometimes it's really extrapolating from like very early stage research. But B, even when there is good evidence behind those sorts of recommendations, I think it's really hard for people to hear them in a way that is not black and white or that doesn't risk slipping easily into black and white thinking because most people in our society, I think, are on that sort of seesaw of, okay, we can do like a flexible dietary control thing, but it tips really easily into rigid dietary control. You know, there's been research on this that flexible and rigid dietary control are like part of the same spectrum, part of the same sort of plane, as it were. And intuitive eating is like on a totally different plane or spectrum, and it's not related to that sort of dietary control idea. But I think people who are living in this culture and who've been socialized and into thinking about food in certain ways and body size in certain ways and exercise in certain ways, like it's really hard to have any sort of prescription related to food and exercise that that doesn't risk turning very disordered to the point where like, you know, when you think about diabetes, which is a condition that unfortunately people have to think about especially type 1 diabetes, but in some cases type 2 as well, where you're having to like count carbohydrates for insulin dosing, that is something that can make people so obsessive about food to the point where people with diabetes are at 
many times higher risk. Like I think I saw one statistic that it was like 20 times higher risk than the general population for eating disorders. And women, young women with type 1 diabetes are like 30 or 40% of them meet criteria for eating disorders. And of course, there's potentially other things that can account for that too, right? Like there might be hormonal things contributing to people's disordered eating that are specific to diabetes. But I think, and the research in this area suggests that it's largely to do with the hyper-focus on what you're eating and the the need to like limit or restrict certain foods that's causing people to have such a higher risk of disordered eating. And so I think that's something that is just not really talked about in the mainstream healthcare system or the mainstream wellness culture systems, you know, like alternative medicine, integrative and functional medicine, I think don't really take disordered eating into account either, just like the conventional system. You know, people aren't really, that's not really on people's minds. I think people think of eating disorders as this small silo that's very separate from healthcare and medicine and, you know, the sort of conventional wisdom and diet and wellness culture is like, everybody could stand to eat better. Everybody could stand to lose weight. We don't eat enough vegetables. We don't, we eat too many processed food, blah, 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 right? This sort of vision of the standard American diet, quote unquote, that is supposedly out of control and leading people down a bad path. And so like, that's where healthcare providers of all stripes, I think, feel the need to focus their energy. And I think the conventional healthcare system, you know, there are certainly doctors within the conventional system who might take a slightly more integrative or functional approach, but not be sort of like fully immersed in that approach who might be leading people onto diets and stuff too. But I think I do, one thing I do appreciate about some of my conventional healthcare providers is how like not at all concerned they are about diets, how they sort of look at other factors related to health that have nothing to do with what I'm eating or what I weigh or anything like that. And of course, as a smaller bodied person, I have the privilege that doctors will overlook that for me when they might not for a larger bodied person. But I think there even are healthcare providers out there who will not bring weight into the conversation for larger bodied folks as well, although that's harder to find. But I think that when you get into like integrative and functional and alternative spaces, food is such an integral part of the conversation. Food is like the number one thing, you know, the food is medicine belief is really front and center there. And I think that's where it becomes really risky. I think that's where it becomes a slippery slope into disordered eating for many, many people. And you don't necessarily know ahead of time who is at risk or who is going to fall into that, you know, disordered eating place because yes, people who have a history of it are definitely vulnerable and at risk. And I would definitely not recommend to someone who comes in and says, I have a history of disordered eating. I would not recommend that they go on a diet or elimination diet or protocol or plan eliminating foods or restricting foods or whatever it might be, unless they have diabetes where they might need to count carbohydrates or something. But even then there's ways of doing it that are not demonizing of carbs and don't require people to cut out carbs entirely and stuff. But I think when you look at just, you know, someone who doesn't have a history or doesn't know they have a history necessarily or think of themselves as having a history of disordered eating, or maybe maybe has like a really positive relationship with food in their body when they come in, folks like that are still vulnerable. And I know people who came in never having dieted, never having worried about the size and shape of their body, and were recommended to cut out foods and do elimination diets because of a certain health condition you know, working with an integrative or functional provider, or even sometimes with a conventional provider, and then really tumbled into disordered eating and perhaps even full-blown eating disorders in some cases, 
and you know their relationship with food and their bodies was very damaged and in part that was because they were getting so much positive reinforcement for the weight they lost or for having cut out these foods right and being so quote unquote good and healthy and you know in the eyes of people around them and that's where like the cultural element comes into play too because it's not just the provider's fault it's like and you know not to blame the provider entirely either but like i think the culture like sets us all up for this kind of thing you know and reinforces the idea that the person was doing good by cutting out foods and by losing weight, et cetera. So it's just really, really tricky. And I think, understandably, a lot of people are attracted to providers who have a more holistic or integrative or functional sort of view of things because we think that that's going to help us. We think that that's going to be the key to unlocking whatever is going on for us that conventional healthcare hasn't been able to address effectively. And, you know, I get that. I get why there's that belief, because in some cases we do feel much more cared for in those alternative systems and in wellness, you know, sort of oriented spaces. And yet I think it's really important to look at the the risks and the unintended consequences of that approach and to say that it's not without risk, you know, and I think sometimes people, when they're desperate, and I've felt this way too, like, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose by trying this? I might as well try. Even if it's not effective, what harm could it do? And in some cases, it could actually do a significant amount of harm. And so I think seeing it as something with potential serious side effects rather than saying, oh, this is the natural approach, so therefore it's good and I don't need to like be skeptical or worry is important. Yeah, it's interesting because like you said, so many people don't know that they might be susceptible to having a disordered relationship with food until they start to have one, you know? Like in my case, when I first encountered a functional medicine doctor, I was mostly okay with food or in my body, so I thought, but I was also really young, you know? I was like 19. And so I think I don't even know how my 20s and early 30s would have gone without having this as part of it was so in my brain even in college in my college environmental journalism class we were taught michael pollan we were taught about standard that's when i first remember hearing about standard american diet like i remember it being on a test you know and it's very cultural even you know my i grew up with a lot of family members in larger bodies and all of them actually. And my mom would always say when someone asked her about her weight, which is like just wild that, you know, that's a thing that people even do, but it would happen quite a lot when I was with her just as a kid. And someone would mention, you know, are you losing weight? Have you lost weight? Something like that. And she would always say the same thing, which was always trying, always trying. Just like, as you say, how are you? Nice to meet you. Always like, I just kind of was like, all right, well, when I get older, I'll say always trying when someone asks that quote, like, it's just so pervasive in our culture. And until I, you know, met you and so many others that have been on your podcast and have really informed my thoughts on weight stigma and, all of these issues that we're talking about, it just makes it so complex. And I think that anytime you're you're focusing on food or, or talking about it with a practitioner, having to track anything at all, for me, that's a real slippery slope. And I wouldn't have known that starting out. And a lot of people probably don't know that until it's kind of too late and you need to 
do something about that. And I think, yeah, the, the care effect can kind of put blinders on to some of that or, or just, you know, keep you more stuck in it. And then social media can add another layer to that. And of course, this is so on our culture. And I, I want to get to talking about social media a little bit. But before we shift out of functional medicine, I, I said earlier, two things really were chilling for me. And the other one, other than the part about a history of disordered eating, is a fascinating section of your book where you talk about the word hysteria and how the hysteria diagnosis. Well, I'll just let you talk about what what happened with the hysteria diagnosis, because I think it's an anecdote that speaks to to this in a way that was really a watershed moment for me. (laughs) Yeah. So I think with hysteria, there's a really interesting history there that kind of connects it to what we've been talking about with the care effect and sort of why people feel dismissed in the conventional healthcare system. Because I think there's a piece of it where there's this long history of dismissing women's pain and dismissing women's symptoms, right? And this goes back to Greek antiquity, where the womb was considered to be like the source of all illnesses for women or many, many illnesses that women could experience. The idea that there was such a thing as a wandering womb, that your womb could just like wander around into different parts of your body and cause problems was part of ancient Greek medicine. And then, you know, the word for uterus in Greek is hystera or in ancient Greek, I guess, is hystera. So that's where the, the name hysteria apparently came from. There is some dispute over like whether Hippocrates invented the idea of hysteria or whether it was other doctors in Greek antiquity, but the notion of a wandering womb certainly was there and was being, you know, blamed for for all kinds of women's ailments. And from there, the notion of hysteria had a long history, like it kind of continued to exist in various forms through decades and millennia or decades and centuries And once mental health started to be a little more understood and the brain started to be seen as the site of potentially many ailments, hysteria was labeled as a mental health diagnosis and it was put into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. And uh, it actually stayed there until 1980. Like it was not taken out until almost the whole way through the 20th century. And so that notion of hysteria as a mental health condition was a way to blame any sort of unexplained symptoms that a woman might be experiencing. And, you know, at that point, it was men could be labeled with it too, but I think it was still very much conceived of as like a female issue. The idea that your mental health or your a mental problem, this supposed problem of hysteria, was at the root of all kinds of unexplained physical symptoms. I think is still something that shows up in conventional healthcare in various ways. And it's really tricky to talk about because there is a connection between the mind and the body and mental health conditions can have physical impacts and physical health conditions can also cause mental health impacts. There's very much a feedback loop there that happens. But for me as someone with PTSD and anxiety, like I definitely have come to understand the impact of those mental health conditions and just chronic stress in general on my physical body and physical symptoms. And that is true. You know, we see that in the research that chronic stress has all these negative health effects for people, especially long term. And 
we can't just go blaming any unexplained symptoms someone has on mental health issues. And I think there needs to be a lot of nuance to the conversation about the impacts that mental health can have on our physical well-being, not just sort of saying, well, you know, I can't explain it in this five-minute visit or in a series of like five to 15-minute visits and a few imaging studies we've done or whatever. Therefore, it must be stress or it must be anxiety or depression or like you need to just go on an antidepressant or something. I think that's unfortunately what some conventional healthcare providers will end up conveying to patients, even if it's not directly saying it's all in your head or like you're just a woman who's hysterical or whatever, right? Like the sort of overt misogyny, I think, has gone down over the years, although there, it certainly exists, I know, in pockets. But I think for the most part, doctors won't come out and say it's all in your head, but they might say some of this could be related to stress. Have you tried meditation? Have you tried an antidepressant? Have you tried an anti-anxiety? Let me give you a referral to a therapist. And even when that's really well-meaning, and even if it is couched in a really nuanced conversation about the mind-body connection and stuff, I think people who are desperate and experiencing symptoms that are causing them pain, when they hear that, they can take that as a real dismissal and as a real kind of slap in the face. It feels like saying, well, what you're experiencing physically doesn't count. And I know for me too, I don't remember because it was, you know, 20 plus years ago at this point when I was really in the early stages of figuring out some of my chronic health conditions that I know now played a role in how I was feeling back then, in addition to disordered eating, you know, which was not really addressed at the time. But what I remember of that time is that feeling of dismissal, that feeling of people saying, yeah, you know, you should probably go to therapy, even if that's not exactly how they said it, or even if it's not exactly what they said, you know, but it's, that was sort of what I picked up. And I think that sort of legacy of dismissal of people's pain, and especially women's pain and difficulty of the conventional medical system in accounting for chronic pain or chronic symptoms, chronic illness, makes it really appealing to go into a space where they're not telling you that, except, or it doesn't feel like they're telling you that, right? It feels like they're giving you empathy and support. The interesting thing is that actually in some cases, people do end up feeling dismissed and made to feel like it's all in their head or made to feel like it's this just is what it is. Like I talked to someone in the book, a woman named Jennifer, who asked that I just use her first name, who said that at first when she worked with this functional medicine provider, she felt really heard and understood and empathized with. And the nurse practitioner was giving her time and space to like really figure out what was happening. And that was something she hadn't gotten in the conventional healthcare system. So she felt really good and was like, you know, this person's going to get to the bottom of it. And then eventually, after a bunch of tests and protocols and stuff that hadn't worked, this provider was like, well, you know, when your whole system is inflamed like yours is, you're just going to have pain. That was a tipping point for her of thinking like, okay, now I feel totally dismissed by this person. And the care effect wore off for her and she was able to decide to go to a different provider. And what ended up happening was she had a tumor that that had been totally missed in this functional medicine approach. It was a tumor that was a very rare and aggressive type of tumor that was living on her pancreas and was intertwined with critical blood vessels. And the doctor said, you know, she she said she had the surgery like the day or the week before her 38th birthday. And the doctor said, this is such a like a rare and aggressive type of tumor. And it was so intertwined with these blood vessels, like 
if we hadn't caught it and had the surgery now, you probably wouldn't have lived to see 45. Obviously, that's not something that happens every day or to everyone by any means. It's a very rare case. And I think it speaks to the issues in these wellness systems and these, you know, alternative systems of healthcare that say everything is attributable to food and inflammation and gut microbiome and stuff that's not really understood or measurable and that where the science is in a really young state and providers are sort of over-interpreting information like reading tests and lab values in non-standard ways and saying, oh, well, in our practice, we see this as suboptimal, even if it says normal on the lab, but we really want to see it at this level in, in our practice or whatever. Getting so granular and like specific and, and into the weeds on these things that don't have really good scientific evidence behind them, I think can lead providers to miss real conditions that people have that actually do have good evidence behind them and good treatment that's available when they're caught early enough and when it's found by someone who knows what to look for. And one of the things with Jennifer's experience that really stood out to me is that she said none of the providers she saw before, conventional or functional, palpated her abdomen and located the place where the pain was. And that to me just seems like such a basic part of patient care. Like she came in with abdominal pain was one of her symptoms. And so it just seems to me like that's something that any good provider should be doing, right, is checking out like where the pain is. And to get so in the weeds with other explanations when you haven't even done that sort of basic level workup feels like a real missed opportunity, if not malpractice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, it's such an intense story. And I want to talk about how social media plays into all of this. And in the book, you break down how social media and algorithms have contributed to this massive growth of modern wellness culture, which I believe is a $4.4 trillion global industry. Is that right? Yeah, that's the statistic by the Global Wellness Institute, their estimate of the valuation of the wellness industry. It's so wild. There's so much in your book about the role the internet as a whole played into building it up to what we see it as now in a relatively short amount of time, just reflecting on that day in 2014 when we met to now, it, it's like night and day where it is. But with that or before that, I guess, talking about the care effect and talking about how all of these intense conditions that we have that might come from from trauma and and be mental health related and just the isolation and loneliness that so much of us felt every day <laughs> within the pandemic our reliance on each other is innate to us and i think very human and is there anything you know in your research of the book or in thinking about the book and in your own experience now of preparing for the book launch and you've become a mother in the last few years as you wrote this book and you've had so many experiences with that you know i'm just curious are there anything we can do to protect ourselves from needing our providers to provide so much without i'm not saying like turning to social media or turning to dr google but just in 
community and in connection and friendship? And is there anything that you've seen in your life to be helpful to mitigate some of that coming at you? Yeah, I think there's there's a lot there. And the, like I unpack a lot of different sort of aspects of this in the book. One thing we haven't even really touched on here and, and don't probably have time to get into is the social determinants of health and how those play a role in people's health outcomes and such a bigger role at the population level than we're led to believe. And I think our healthcare system needs to do a much better job of understanding those and accounting for those and not expecting people to be solely responsible for their own health and well-being. There are a lot of societal level changes that need to be made, and it's not really up to the individual to to make these changes. You know, I think there are things we can do in the current system to help ourselves stay safe from wellness mis and disinformation and heal from wellness culture approaches that have led us down slippery slopes of disordered eating and harmful protocols and practices and things like that. And it shouldn't be the individual's responsibility, right? So another societal level approach that I think is really important is to regulate social media companies so that they are not spreading wellness misinformation and disinformation the way they are now. And I think they're sort of the market-based approaches to that, the effort to like fact check and use artificial intelligence to try to cut down on certain kinds of content that are being posted online just really hasn't worked and hasn't been effective. And there's so much that has slipped through the cracks with that. Fact checks really don't work to dissuade people from believing or or clicking on and sharing misinformation and disinformation. And AI just can't keep up with the sort of way that people who want to spread this stuff are getting ahead of it and trying to outsmart it. And there really needs to be human moderation. But I think even more than that, there needs to be regulation and consequences on these companies for letting their algorithms promote that kind of mis- and disinformation that is leading to, you know, in some cases like public health crises, right? Fanning the flames of COVID and causing people to eschew the vaccine and refuse to use masks and spreading the virus and exposing so many more people to this this deadly pandemic. You know, it's just one example of, of how this happens. I mean, I think also about even non-pandemic stuff that happens in wellness culture where people are led into eschewing conventional treatment for cancer or for any other serious or potentially fatal disease because they're being told that they can do it quote unquote naturally with food and alternative practices and stuff. I think that there will always be people who want to spread that kind of information. And and I think it's not all disinformation, right? It's not all spread with with malicious intent. I think in some ways, in some cases, it's people who really think they're doing the right thing and want to share information. And, you know, it just happens to be untrue information. But I think really the responsibility should lie with social media companies' algorithms for promoting that kind of content. And unfortunately, the algorithms are designed to maximize engagement. And the thing that happens to maximize engagement is a couple of things, novelty, moral outrage, you know, disgust, controversy, right? Negative emotions that keep people clicking and sharing and, you know, engaging in flame wars in the comments. And so much wellness culture stuff really hits all those points. You know, it's like the novelty of like, ooh, you can really outsmart, here's what doctors don't want you to know, or you can outsmart your disease by doing this three little weird hacks that you never thought would cure Hashimoto's or whatever it is, you know? And so 
I think the social media companies need to be responsible for what their algorithms are amplifying and people need to be able to sue them if they come across things that are that lead to harm. And we've actually started to see that happening in the courts. Some interesting cases have sort of been, I won't get into the weeds of like Section 230 and the law. I do get into the weeds of that a little bit in the book, but it's super interesting. But Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is called the 26 words that created the internet. That's what it's often referred to as because it shields social media companies and other internet service providers from any sort of liability for what their users post. So, you know, in traditional publishing, publishers have to fact check and have to are responsible for spreading any harmful misinformation and people can sue them for for spreading that information. But with Section 230, like anything that users are posting on the internet and sharing on social media, the social media companies are not liable for that content. And I think they need to be. So that's one thing I think that, you know, as a, at a societal level, we can do to help stem the tide of some of this harmful stuff in wellness culture. As for individuals, I think, you know, a couple of things that I've found helpful that, that I think are helpful to people I've worked with and talked to about this is trying to just be really skeptical of wellness culture approaches, you know, approaching complementary and alternative and integrative and functional medicine with as much skepticism as you've been conditioned to approach conventional medicine and even more so perhaps because, you know, there really isn't as much evidence base behind those things. And, you know, not just sort of taking at face value that something is natural and therefore it's good or safe. Another thing we didn't get into that I go into a lot in the book is the supplement industry and how harmful and barely regulated it is and how problematic that all is. And I think people are in wellness culture conditioned to view supplements as, again, it's natural, it's gentle, it's safe. You know, what harm could it do? Actually, quite a bit of harm. There's really no one looking out for us in terms of what goes into those pills and those bottles because of supplement industry lobbying and a 1994 law that allows supplement companies to put their products on the market without any testing for safety or efficacy. And it's only after the fact with enough consumer complaints that the FDA can look into something, potentially recommend a recall, but sometimes they just send warning letters. Very few of, of the things that are reported to the FDA necessarily get recalled from the market. And even the ones that are recalled or where the companies receive warning letters, often it takes years for them to even get them off shelves. Like the the companies will just keep those things in stores or stores won't get rid of them. And they, they'll just like stay in circulation for a long time, potentially harming people. And the things that go into supplements that are problematic are in some cases just ineffective. There's not standardized doses or the product in question doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't have enough of an active ingredient to do anything. Or I think in in more concerning cases, it can be laced with drugs, with actual pharmaceuticals or with other illegal banned substances. You know, there have been amphetamine-like substances found in a lot of commercial weight loss supplements that are sold in like vitamin chains across the country. These things are, you know, incredibly harmful. There's adrenal supplements that you can get can often have thyroid hormone or corticosteroids, steroid hormones in them. Those are medications that need to be properly dosed and regulated and not just sort of slipped in secretly to a supplement, right, to make it feel like it's having an effect because it probably is having an effect if it has those drugs in it, right? But people don't know that. Consumers aren't told and these things 
you know, the pharmaceutical industry for all its problems, and there are definitely many, especially when it comes to weight loss drugs, the pharmaceutical industry is still regulated and companies have to prove the safety and efficacy of their products before they go to market. And that just is not true for the supplement industry and the su and supplements are not at all harmless the way that they're made out to be. So I think, again, that like at the societal level, we need to do a much better job regulating the supplement industry. That 1994 law should be repealed. We need to have a lot more oversight of, of supplements. And I think at the individual level, just knowing that and being skeptical and not taking supplements without a lot of vetting and a lot of research and also just maybe taking as little as possible. You know, like for me, I, I used to grew up in a family that had a ton of supplements. We had like these big cabinets full of over-the-counter medications and supplements and just were constantly sort of encouraged to take them for any sort of symptom we could be having or general wellness as well. And, you know, as an adult, I continued that. I had a, a whole cabinet of my own of supplements. But um, when I started to look into this and, and started to, I mean, really, it was when I went back to school to be a dietitian, I realized that supplements aren't necessary. Vitamin and mineral supplements especially aren't necessary in most cases. But really looking into the supplement industry and how poorly regulated it is and all the problems that that can cause has really caused me to like just go cold turkey on most supplements except for anything I need for a deficiency. And you can talk to your doctor about what that is and really, I think, push your doctor in some cases, especially if it's a integrative or functional or alternative medicine provider, really pushing them on what the actual evidence is behind supplement recommendations and whether they can write you a prescription or really stand behind their recommendation of a particular brand of supplements, because unfortunately, it's just such a wild west of an industry. Yeah. Of all of the points you said about the supplement industry, that, that point that really drove it home most to me or that my jaw dropped was that they can be laced with actual pharmaceuticals was just so, so intense and wild. And my cameo in your first book, I was interviewed in that about how much money I've spent on diet culture in that book. And if I was interviewed in this book, I, you know, I didn't, unlike you, I didn't grow up in a family that had a ton of supplements. I didn't have any actually, but as a, you know, late teens, early twenties, when I was down the wellness wormhole, I spent so much money on supplements. And as a case study, I can tell you, I never noticed a difference from anything. And that sounds like I got lucky because I didn't notice a negative effect and have something, you know, it just, I learned so, so much from, from this book and, and always, always learn so much from you. And I mean, people can tell just by listening like to this, how much research and how much care went into this book and covering just so, so much. And I think that it would be interesting to leave people with or, or have you discuss a little bit the connection between wellness culture and diet culture. And obviously, as I mentioned, your first book, Anti-Diet, and, and you said this at the beginning, you cover wellness culture and how it's the new guise of diet culture, but you expanded your understanding to see there's actually a symbiotic relationship between the two. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was such an interesting part of reporting this book was looking into the history of wellness culture itself. And I knew that it wasn't just the modern guise of diet culture, that there were other aspects to it. 
But I think the researching that and and looking into the history of that was really what kind of hit it home. So what I have come to define wellness culture as is that it's a set of values that equates wellness with moral goodness and posits certain behaviors and a certain type of body as the path to achieving that goodness. And it really overlaps with diet culture, I think, which, you know, I described in anti-diet as a system of beliefs that equates thinness, muscularity, and particular body shapes with health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss and body reshaping as a means of attaining higher status, demonizes some foods and food groups while elevating others and oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health. And what I came to find was that at the outset of wellness culture, of this concept of wellness in sort of its modern guise, and I say modern like dating back to the 1950s and 60s, basically in 1959, the word wellness was used for the first time in sort of what we see now as the, as the modern sense of like optimization. It's not just the antonym for illness, but the sort of pursuit of wellness in and of itself. From that sort of first 1959 definition, I won't get into all this, but we'll have that in the, in the bonus episode for people who are curious. But the 1959 definition, I think, had a lot more in common with what I see as well-being, looking at sort of the whole person and social, emotional, you know, psychological, interpersonal, communal, collective type of impacts on people's health and outcomes and the sort of importance of mental health. But then in the, the 1970s, it sort of got redefined and that became the basis of what we know as wellness today. And it was very much it like incorporated diet culture into its foundation. So demonizing of certain foods and food groups, there was anti-fat bias, like really overt anti-fat bias kind of baked into the seminal text of defining the term wellness. And it was sort of using diet culture as this driving force, you know, so like diet culture has now cloaked itself in the guise of wellness to sort of legitimize itself at a time when people are increasingly skeptical of diets and don't believe the diets work. But I think wellness culture kind of used diet culture as like a foundational set of beliefs and then built on it from there. And I think what I've seen it build on on top of that is that it's really denigrating conventional medicine and idolizing alternative and quote unquote natural and holistic approaches to healing as we've talked about. And we haven't even gotten into like cultural appropriation either, which I talk about in the book, but wellness culture really has this particular reverence for anything that's perceived as ancient and non-Western, even if that's not really the case, even if, you know, the the sort of practice in question is really cherry-picked and not sort of the original version coming from another place. It's like anything that is perceived as non-Western and ancient has this halo around it. And wellness culture also really stresses the importance of like the individual's ability to pick and choose from modalities and which wellness practices are going to work for you. I think once you're thinking about food in this way of like, I have to be careful what I put into my body. Some foods are bad. Some foods are toxins or poison, right? This like really over overblown rhetoric around conventional foods or industrially produced foods or whatever, then I think it's easy to slide from there into like conventionally produced soap is bad for me, conventionally produced, you know, home care products, conventionally produced skincare, like anything that you put in, on, or around your body suddenly becomes suspect. And I think when you get into that, then you can get into sort of an orthorexia of the home, an orthorexia of the body and orthorexia of skincare and, and beauty. Like it's not just about what you're putting 
in your body anymore. It can also lead to orthorexic and conspiratorial thinking about vaccines as being impure. It can lead to all sorts of places that I think are really harmful to people's overall well-being and true true well-being, you know, which encompasses their mental health and emotional health and social relationships and all of that. And so I think for all that, I, I don't want to say that like wellness culture is all bad, right? I do think there are aspects of it that are potentially beneficial to people. You know, I find yoga and meditation really helpful. I also am a member of the wellness industry in some way as a dietitian and intuitive eating counselor. And I've written books, you know, I'm a reporter on on food, nutrition, and health going back 20 years. And so I am part of it to some extent too. And I don't want to say that it's all bad, but I just see so many harmful effects of it and this origin of it coming out of the denigration of of food and bodies. And that also has roots dating back even earlier to like the 1800s and 1700s with anti-Black racism that I talk a little bit about in my first book and that Sabrina Strings writes about really beautifully in her book, Fearing the Black Body. You know, so it's the roots of this are deep and complicated and there's lots of different aspects to it. But yeah, I think wellness culture as a whole is pretty problematic. And I think it's worth being really skeptical of it, even if you like some aspects of it, even if you enjoy experimenting with different things and products, I think it can be just difficult to dabble without getting really sucked in. And so being aware of that and being sort of vigilant and boundaried at all times is a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am very susceptible of that. And that that was definitely my experience. And I just have to say, Christy, you know, you're your work from your podcast, Food Psych, for the last 10 years and your first book, Anti-Diet, have helped me so much notice things that I wouldn't have clocked in myself about diet culture and disordered eating. And then this book, reading it, really helped me to see so much nuance and how my relationship to those things diet culture and disordered eating has been amplified and twisted and turned through wellness culture in ways that I was really not aware of. And so I I can't recommend this book more to people than I am doing right now. I, I really, truly, you know, if if you're here because you know Christy and, and have followed her work, then you're really going to find a lot of novel information in here that takes things into a direction that I I just wasn't aware of. And, you know, I think specifically going back to that 23-year-old that came into your apartment in 2014, at the time, my, my podcast was called The Wellness Wonderland. It was right there up top in the name. And I feel embarrassed in, about that in some ways. And I feel far from that person in some ways. And I also have a lot of empathy because like you said here, a lot of those things can be fun or, or, you know, perhaps even useful and same. I also meditate. I taught yoga for many, many years and still do it and have so many different practices and parts of wellness culture that are baked into me. And, and I still find useful and enjoy. However, I do see the underbelly of it through conversations with with you and through your book and was starting to see it a lot before that, even in ways that are difficult to explain, like when it becomes so consuming, like you were saying with functional medicine, when you start to pay attention to what you're 
eating and what this means and what that food means, it's really challenging to unsee it. And when I know how many calories a banana has, like that doesn't just leave my brain. It's just there. When I know that somebody told me this is a food that is this or that, like it's, it's harder to deprogram that. And it takes a lot of time. And, and then also just the amount of time that goes to managing wellness practices or having that be your hobby, thinking about what that's taking you away from. And I think a, a, a trope of your first book of like how diet culture steals your time and your money and your identity. I think wellness culture, I think it can do the same. And and I, I've, I'm starting to question like, who would I be? What would I have been doing with my time and money if I wasn't putting it into this culture? And I think seeing young, so many young people get into it so, so early as a hobby, I wonder what that means. And so anyway, just thank you so much for writing this book. And I am so excited for people to be able to read it and can you tell everyone exactly where they can find it and what they can do to get more bonus content? Mm, yes. Thank you so much for for this interview, this conversation, for coming on and guest interviewing me on my podcast. It's been so great to talk with you and I'm excited to have a part two on your podcast. But people can find the book at christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap or just go into your local bookstore and ask for it. And people can get it on their favorite audiobook app as well. If you like to listen to audiobooks, I read the audiobook. So if you like my voice, it's less scratchy on the, <laughs> the audiobook, I think, than it is right now because I've been doing a lot of interviews lately. But you can listen to it on an audiobook as well. And then um, if you want to get bonus content, you can subscribe to the Rethinking Wellness Substack, where I'm going to be doing some occasional bonus stuff, including this bonus episode that we talked about with more on the history of wellness culture and maybe some other stuff related to this interview. And you can find that at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Oh, and depending on, well, this is going to come out the day before the book launches. So if you're listening to this the day it comes out on April 24th, you still have one day to pre-order the book and then submit your proof of purchase to get the bonus webinar that I'm going to be doing for people who pre-ordered. The book comes out on April 25th on that Tuesday. So definitely get your pre-order in before that. You can submit your proof of purchase once you've pre-ordered at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. And that will get you admission to this uh, Zoom call that I'm going to be doing in May. Highly recommend doing all of those things. <laughs> it's, it's really great. So thank you so much for having me and congrats again on the new book. And like I said, I have copious notes of more things I wanted to cover. So we'll do more on my podcast and, and we'll have many more conversations about it. Yeah, let's, let's hop over there to do that. And for people who are listening and want to listen to that, where can they find you and subscribe to your podcast? Thank you. It's called Let It Out and it's wherever podcasts are. And I write a newsletter too. That's called the Let It Out letter. And I'm just at Katie Dalebow on social media where all those weird algorithms are. <laughs> and we'll, I'm sure, put links to all of that here. But thank you so much for having me and letting me interview you on your you know, home, home court about such an important book. And I'm really happy that I got to be here. So thank you. It's such an honor. Well, thank you. It's such a great, great conversation. So that's our show. Thanks so much to Katie Dalebout for being a great guest host on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. 
The Wellness Trap is officially on sale Tuesday, April 25th, and you can get it wherever you buy books or by going to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Sales in the first week of a book are huge in terms of potentially getting on bestseller lists, so I would be incredibly grateful if you bought the book this week if you're thinking of doing it. And if you pre-order the book before April 25th, so if you're listening to this the day it comes out, basically today, you can get a special bonus webinar and Q&A with me by uploading your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. If you enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you'd take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to this. And you can get new episodes delivered by email every other week by signing up at rethinkingwellness.substack.com, where you can also become a paid subscriber for early access to episodes, occasional bonus episodes like the one Katie and I mentioned before, and to help support the show. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasik and her team at A-Team Virtual. Album art was designed by Tara Jacoby, and theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. Take care.